people tend to prefer to live in a non-Muslim country. That is certainly true for Hindus, for Christians. From the Middle East, there are many running away. In my country, you see, there is quite a, quite a number of uh, Middle Eastern Christians. Also, Muslims want to run away. It, you know, many of these Syrian refugees prefer to live in Germany or to go to America rather than to go to Turkey or some Islamic country in their neighborhood. So there is something wrong with Islamic regimes. India now is break-even. The population is no longer growing, or at least the birth rate is no longer growing. It is at um, even level, a reproductive level, 2.1 per woman. But that means that the Hindu birth rate is already clearly lower than 2.1. Whereas the Muslim birth rate obviously is higher than 2.1. So what you're going to get now, well, very soon the Hindu number is going to level off. I mean, like at most one generation from now. Whereas the Muslim population keeps growing, growing, growing. Yes, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to focus on the race within the Islamic world between expansion, both demographic expansion and institutional expansion, and the uh, churning within the Muslim community, the self-doubt, the doubt about Islam, and the phenomenon that more and more Muslims are leaving Islam. The subject of Islam is something that I haven't really been busy with for quite some time because I decided already at least 10 years ago that everything has been said. It's a very simple topic. I mean, you can of course fill your life finding out more details and, and the whole history and so on. But essentially it is very simple. So I didn't care for it anymore except that in my society in Western Europe, well, Islam is on the march, and it came much in the news with the terror attacks. Now it's a bit of a lower ebb for terror, but around uh, 2015, 16, we're very much alive. And so there were terror attacks, for example, in Brussels, uh, 2016, in two places where I come very often. So, you know, it could have happened to me. And in fact, uh, two days later, there was a visit by Narendra Modi, who, you know, gave a little nod to the recent events by starting the speech with saying that he commiserated with the victims and that, of course, these terror attacks have nothing to do with the real Islam. That's what all politicians say. My attention was then drawn not so much by Islam, because I, I knew what Islam is capable of. It was also the time of uh, ISIS in Syria. And uh, so there was a lot in the news, the cruelty of Islam, the atrocities by Islam. Yet, you see, all the politicians said that um, this had nothing to do with Islam. I mean, this was as sure as anything. If Islam comes in the news negatively, 
immediately you will have official statements that it had nothing to do with Islam. Also, when um, Islam came in the news negatively, immediately you would have a whole, uh, a whole queue of politicians lining up at the nearest mosque to say to Muslims, oh, we are with you, you know, we don't want you to get the blame. It had nothing to do with Islam. Right? So, frankly, I am more worried about the non-Muslims and the way they treat the Islam problem than about Muslims themselves. You know, if they defend themselves, if they try to whitewash their acts, well, that's in a way understandable. Whereas what the... uh, particularly the left, but also quite a few on the right, are um, saying about Islam that is more difficult to accept. Like, for instance, you have very many secular, you know, leftist, anti-clerical politicians who nevertheless side with Islam. They're still against Christianity, though less militantly than they used to, but they are not critical of Islam at all. Like, for example, just now there has been the case in France of a teenage girl uh, who seems to be lesbian, and so she was attacked for that on social media by Muslims. And so she... In reply, she gave her her opinion about Islam, which was quite negative. And so um, she called Islam some really nasty names. And then she received death threats. And then politicians like Ségolène Royal clearly blamed her for what happened to her. She has sought it herself. And also the, um, the, the justice minister of all people. And moreover, she gave a proposal, I mean the minister, that um, French law should ban blasphemy. You know, just like in Pakistan. Now, France is the mother country of secularism. Militantly secular, the, the regimes since at least uh, 1905, uh, and, but also, of course, during the French Revolution, were militantly anti-clerical and certainly you know, didn't care for a notion of blasphemy. So now for the secularist French government to announce a law against blasphemy, that is really... 108 degrees turn. So those people are strongly in favor of Islam. Like, for instance, most of them, in all seriousness, use the term Islamophobia. Now, you see, Islamophobia is, an, is a nonsense term. A phobia, you know, that term is used for a psychiatric disease. And so in the Soviet Union, it is well known that dissenters were sent to psychiatric hospitals. All right? So now this is happening again. So any criticism of Islam is dismissed as Islamophobia. Uh, The term was 
launched, it was already used during the colonial period in French Algeria, um, but it was launched as a, as a pro-Islamic term, as a whitewashed term, uh, in, um, by the Runnymede Trust around 1990. So this is a, an official anti-racist body in Britain. And then it was picked up immediately by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. And then it has passed on into common parlance, uh, the United Nations, the European Union, and so on. They all use it. They all declare it one of the biggest enemies. So, or I'll give another example. The feminist movement, you would think that they are concerned about Islam. Well, they are not. Uh, for instance, to take one of the most serious problems, I mean, you know, I'm not going to talk about the hijab, you know, the veil. Uh, of that, I would say, well, you know, it's not so important. In fact, I myself was once thrown out of school uh, for having long hair. <laughs> that was a provocative thing in those days. So I am very much in favor of the freedom of people to do with their looks what they want. Uh, only that is very often not the case. You see, girls wear this because they're forced to. Um, but anyway, it, that, that, you know, is like relatively unimportant. What is, for instance, very important is the practice of female genital mutilation, which also exists in India. Um, so top feminists have said that, you know, this is no concern, like Germaine Greer from Australia, one of the leading feminists, she has said, well, this is like a cosmetic operation. You know, dismissing it like that. So, the, the liberal attitude towards the Islam problem, that I find very problematic. Now, of course, in India you get to see a lot more of the threat that Islam poses. Like just now, here in Delhi, this agitation against the... Um, Citizenship uh, Amendment Act. Right now I am motivated to talk about the Islam problem itself. But in Europe it's also once in a while it's, it's there. But in India you feel it far more physically. Is, is Islam a problem? You see, I mean, I'm, I'm already assuming that there is such a thing as an Islam problem. But many people will say, how so? You see, you don't say that about any other religion. Why about Islam? Well, first of all, I might say it about quite a few other religions. But anyway, we're talking about Islam. Like they say, for instance, okay, you know, Hindus and Europeans also are worried, oh my God, our country is becoming Muslim majority. The demographic growth of Islam is such that it is inevitable that in some decades it will become Muslim majority. You know, and then some people say, yeah, but is that a problem? You see, now there is a non-Muslim majority that's not more of a problem than a Muslim majority. Well, I don't think so, because you simply can see what is happening in every Muslim country in the world, to different degrees, of course. Like, for example, Malaysia. It's not too bad, it's not too dictatorial. <coughs> Nevertheless, 
in the first elections in Malaysia, the, um, the Muslims were about 48%. In fact, let's say 50% because the, uh, the Adivasis, uh, the real original inhabitants, didn't really take part in the political process. But so having just enough to get the majority, from then on the Muslims started changing the whole polity and making it more and more Islamic and introducing more and more discriminations against the Chinese and the Indian minorities, which they managed to give a secular coloring by uh, introducing discriminations that would favor the Bhumi Putra, the sons of the soil. Now, strictly speaking, as a historian, I would like to remark that the Malays are not the sons of the soil. You see, the Austronesian language family to which they be belong originated, as far as we can trace back, in southern China, and it spread all over from Madagascar to New Zealand, the whole island world was populated by them. And so Malaysia is in that same case. The original uh, population is, in terms of physical type, more negrito, as they say, um, quite distinct from the Malays themselves. And uh, so they are the real Bhumi Putras. But okay, you know, let's not fuss about that. At any rate, they introduced a number of discriminations in favor of Islam. So now they're far more than 50%. Well, um, and so in a way, Narendra Modi, with his introduction of uh, politics in favor of the refugees from Islamic countries, could easily have included Malaysia, right? Though indeed it is not as bad as Pakistan. But okay. So this is the case in every Muslim-majority country in the world. There is always some degree of discrimination against the others. There is less so than uh, in some places in the Middle Ages, like in India. We were pretty violent, pretty oppressive. Uh, but, you know, because they are all influenced to some extent by the new world order, by Western values, values of tolerance and so on, to, to some extent they, they can't go too far. But still, people tend to prefer to live in a non-Muslim country. That is certainly true for Hindus, for Christians. From the Middle East there are many running away. In my country, you see, there is quite a, quite a number of uh, Middle Eastern Christians. Also, Muslims want to run away. It, you know, Many of these Syrian refugees prefer to live in Germany or to go to America rather than to go to Turkey or some Islamic country in their neighborhood. So there is something wrong with Islamic regimes. And so people, you know, dread the day that Muslims become the majority, for instance, in India. Now, if you look at the demographic figures, it is very certain that Muslims are going to take over. You know, secularists set up these ridiculous stories that this is all made up and you will see nothing of it will happen. I remember Mani Shankar Ayer, 
writing in I think 91 that Muslims were 11% of the population and they would stay 11% forever. No, that doesn't exist. Everything remains the same forever. And in this case in particular, it's something you can test. You see, by census figures, they are now about 15%. And um, the Muslims themselves say that they are in fact far more, that their number is underestimated. Like Sayyid Shahabuddin used to write that already in the 90s. And so one reason given for this was that there are many illegal Muslim immigrants from Bangladesh, also in fact from Pakistan far more than we realize, and that many of them try to stay below the radar. You see, of course they find that in India there is no serious search for illegals or something. You know, they can get away with lots uh, under the communist government, they got ration cards and so on. They could practically act like citizens and then with that record, they could even go to the, 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 the population office, the citizenship office, and even try to get citizenship, which in very many cases happened. But so for all those for whom it didn't happen, well, because they are used to the authoritarianism of Islamic states, they couldn't believe that India was really so silly and tolerant as they were experiencing, they thought, well, maybe one day you see these ugly, vicious Hindu nationalists are coming to power and are going to get serious about this. And so that is what now seems to be happening. That's why you have all these protests. Now, I don't know if it is really going to materialize, but at any rate, now it is really in the air. And so all the Muslims who have been lying low you know, turn out to have been wise in doing so. Now, so according to Shahabuddin, the late Shahabuddin, or, you know, many others now, the percentage of Muslims is seriously larger than, than 15. In fact, yesterday some, uh, some lawyer of Hindu nationalist persuasion told me that Muslims in India are not 200 million, they are actually 400 million. Now, <laughs> that I wouldn't have believed. You see, I thought maybe, maybe 20 million more, but 200 million. And he said, no, you see, don't be mistaken. And so the, uh, the real reason why there's so much against the population register is precisely that they don't want this to come to light. Now, I don't know, you see. My first idea is this must be a conspiracy theory. Anyway, if we wait long enough, then it'll be 400 million and 600 million and more. Because, you see, what is the situation in India? Um, some, some fellow uh, busy with demography told me that uh, India now is break-even population is no longer growing, or at least the birth rate is no longer growing. It is at um, even level, a reproductive level, 2.1 per woman. But that means that 
the Hindu birth rate is already clearly lower than 2.1, whereas the Muslim birth rate obviously is higher than 2.1. So what you're going to get now, well, very soon the Hindu number is going to level off, like at most one generation from now, whereas the Muslim population keeps growing, growing, growing. And in Europe you have the same situation. In Europe, immigration is more a factor than in India. But that they may be able to curb. You see, there are now more nationalist parties coming to power. But um, that won't matter because there are already so many inside. And so their birth rate already makes a difference. And then you can say, yeah, but the birth rate among Muslims is also coming down. That's true. You know, women today have less children than their mothers had. But nevertheless, what, what counts is that it's always higher than the comparable figure for non-Muslims. So, yes, Muslims are becoming the majority. Can't stop it. I mean, there are, of course, campaigns. Oh, yeah, we should have more babies. Uh, like, for instance, some in one of the Christian denominations in Kerala, they had a letter read out in church for all the, uh, all the faithful, where every uh, Christian there was called on to have at least four children. Exactly the same that was proposed by Simon Peres, the Prime Minister of Israel some 30, 40 years ago. Uh, in Israel, it has worked to some extent. You see, Jewish women have like th three children, which is very much above the reproduction level. And unlike in Africa, for example, where they have a very high birth rate, they don't have a high uh, rate of infant mortality. You now, it's a Western society of medicine and so on. Um, so there is a clear rise in, popu in Jewish population in Israel. Still a bit less than Palestinian, but it's, it's getting there. Now, um, so I don't know if this is going to work in Kerala, um, but if you see the latest figures from Kerala, you might understand why they are worried. Um, last year I saw this figure um, in the papers <coughs> of Muslims being in Kerala 26%, but among the newborns, 42%. That's how fast it is increasing. And so when Hindus complain about, yeah, you know, all these Muslims, they, you know, they do things like love jihad, you know, then it is laughter off and paranoia and hate mongering and so on. But now the Christians are saying the same thing and listing so many girls that actually have uh, lived through this. So they are worried. So they try to stimulate the birth rate. Now, yeah, well, you can do that. But um, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, if I look at Hindus today, the Hindu young generation, I don't think they will feel like, oh, I have to serve my, my society by having more children. Moreover, they all have been trained to, for generations already to look at the problem of overpopulation, which is really a very serious problem here.
Um, I grew up when Holland and Flanders, the northern part of Belgium, were the most thickly, the most densely populated in the world, except for Bangladesh. And by now, of course, uh, <clears throat> India has practically bypassed us. Certainly northern India. You know, I mean, I once took the train from Kolkata to Delhi, and I can't remember one moment when I didn't have people inside. I looked outside and you see there were little villages or there were people working the land and so everywhere it was full. If you drive through France, you see many areas are just, you know, without people, just uninhabited. In India you only get that maybe in the Himalaya or so. Now, um, so it is really, he's getting really full. And so very many people say, well, what should I have more children, you see? This is my country, I have to take care of it, and this is one thing that I must do. And you can't go to so many other countries either, they're also filling up. So, so I mean, it makes very good sense to, to, to have population control. Whereas the Muslims, on average, don't care. You say, okay, if, if we have to have less babies, okay, let the others have fewer babies. We'll continue reproducing. So that's, that's a fact. And I think from a, a human rights viewpoint, there is very little you can do about it. It may also not work uh, in China, for example. You had the enforced one-child-per-family policy. Uh, even, even at the, the, the high tide of this policy, the Chinese population was still growing with more than 10 million a year. But on the other hand, it is possible to control the population, but not necessarily with these means. You see, in Taiwan, they had the same decline of the birth rate. And there the population is about to diminish, like it is already very much diminished in Japan. So, actually you didn't need all this repressive policy this one child per family policy. You know, you just raise the living standard, you raise the rate of female education, and automatically you get a lower birth rate. Anyway, that is only when the things that you teach the children are, uh, are promoting this, this tendency to have fewer children. But, you see, when in the madrasa, they learn about Muhammad saying explicitly, I want the Muslims to be more numerous than anyone else. That's what he said. Well, then that's what they're going to do. To some extent, of course, the realities of life may limit that. It may be so overpopulated that buying a house is so difficult, you know, for younger people starting from scratch. Uh, that they will have fewer children. Okay, but even then they will still have more children than the Hindus in the same situation. Okay, so I think I've pretty much made my point. Demographically, you're certainly going to lose. Now, am I panicking? Well, maybe by the time I die it won't have happened yet, so I needn't care. But then again, I have children and I also think about them. So I ought to panic. Yet I'm not panicking.
because apart from this phenomenon of numerical expansion which in Europe also uh, brings with it institutional expansion where more and more Islam is getting recognized the Sharia is being accepted more and more so. Um, but in India that stage is already complete you see there is a full acceptance of Islam um, it has you know the Sharia in its personal law but so the demography is there so okay you see the Islam expanding but at the same time you have a tendency of Islam to weaken from the inside the um, American Protestant uh, organization Pew Research they uh, do this uh, sociology of religion and so they have questioned people in North Africa and so already since the 90s or even before and so they asked the same question you know what is called the, the longitudinal the long-term research in sociology where you every 10 years or so you ask the same questions to people and then see how those answers evolve so at a fairly fast rate the number of people saying that they don't believe in Islam is increasing and especially among the younger generation now to some extent about the young generation not believing many Muslims will say yeah but that doesn't really count you see, that's how youngsters are. They're full of themselves. They're full of their own little, you know, sexual pursuits and whatever. And so they have no time for religion. But that's okay, you know. As they grow older, they will become more religious again. And that's a phenomenon the world over in every religion. But still, you see, the, the, the virtue of this long-term study is precisely that you see how even within the younger generation this phenomenon is increasing. So the present younger generation is less religious than that of a generation ago. Remember the um, Rushdie affair. Salman Rushdie wrote this novel, The Satanic Verses, which was banned in India. In fact, at the request of this very same Syed Shahabuddin. You see, it had to do with the Ayodhya affair. He had announced a Muslim march on Ayodhya to coincide with some Hindu festival there. And so Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi at the time said, well, this is a bloodbath waiting to happen. So he invited Shahid Shahabud and he said, look, you know, we want you to call this march off. What do you want in return? And so one of his demands was the banning of this book that had just been published. And so then the, the case became famous and it caught on and then the Ayatollah gave him the death sentence and so on. Now, at that time, all um, leftist intellectuals in the West and some of them in India sided with Rushdie. In India, the situation was a bit complicated. The hard secularists, the communists, they sided with Rushdie who was, after all, one of them is a Trotskyite. Whereas the Congress-side secularists, they, um, they wavered or they plainly sided with the Muslims, like uh, Hushwan Singh, 
like um, MJ Akbar, now the ideologue of the BJP, and I don't think he changed his mind very much. But so at the time he defended the ban. But anyway, so quite a few leftists, and certainly in the West, defended Rosli. At that time also, I wrote about the affair. In fact, my career as an Islam critic started with that affair. And so back then I thought, well, you know, this is exotic, you see. This is happening in India and in Iran, but, you know, for us this is impossible. This will never happen. Although we already had a Muslim minority that again was speaking out against Rushdie. Not just in England, for example, in Rotterdam, not far from where I live, there was a Muslim demonstration saying, he, hey, moot dood! Hey, moot dood! He must die. <laughs> so, um, okay, but you see, that was the Muslims. That was still a very separate segment of public opinion. Whereas the dominant uh, leftist intellectuals, they started to Druzdi. Today, you see, the situation would be almost inverse. Well, the Muslims would still demand his death. But, you see, many with Muslim names would not. The leftist intellectuals, of course, they, they have completely reversed. Now they support everything in Islam. But among the people who are called Ahmed or Fatima or so, there are quite a few who have left Islam. Let's say two groups, those who still call themselves Muslim, but effectively are against all the touchy points about Islam. And then those who have simply left Islam. Today, in every Western country, you have a society of ex-Muslims. Often with people remaining anonymous, because afraid of the consequences, or afraid to hurt their parents or what. Uh, others also speaking out, and some very actively speaking out, writing books about the problems of Islam, making websites where you can find all the information. You see, this is a, a point where the West has done better than India. On other points, not, but here it has done better. When the Muslim problem became acute in the West, immediately some intellectuals set to work, really scanned Islam, made websites available for everyone, no password, no costs, um, where all the, you know, all the ayats that call for violence against the unbelievers are listed, where the whole history of Islam is scanned, you know, all the, all the violence that Islam has committed against others, and so on. Um, so here in India you had Sitaram Goel in the 90s uh, writing about it, and that was about it. Uh, there is a book about the Sharia, by, um, or about specifically the institution of jizya, the tax that had to be paid by non-believers, the toleration tax uh, by Harsh Narayan. And then there was a book about the institution of slavery in Islam by K.S. Lal. But that's about it. And that was in the 90s. You see, after that there has been no follow-up. But anyway, it doesn't matter because these websites are there. So whether in Arabic, in Persian, I don't know about Hindi, certainly in English, you can get all the information right away. And um, so 
in, to an increasing extent, that is the work of ex-Muslims. So that is a real change. <clears throat> and I mean, that has like never happened in Muslim history. So this is uh, the ambient modernity that is more and more penetrating Muslim society. And some people say that, you see, I'm way too optimistic and so on. I uh, spoke with a VHP, Vishwa Hindu Parishad leader a week ago, and um, he laughed it off, you know, he said, no, you know, whatever we try, you know, we will ultimately be forced to confront them physically. Well, I'm not so sure. You see, there is a precedent in countries like my own. I've seen Christianity collapse. In fact, my country, uh, the, the Flanders, the northern part of Belgium, the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, was something of a Catholic frontline state, surrounded by Anglican England, Protestant Holland, you know, Calvinist Holland, Lutheran Germany, and you know, uh, secular Masonic France, and so you know. Many people were militantly Catholic. In the 1950s, there was a great political struggle where you saw the Catholic mobilization of which my parents were a part. At that time, the Catholic Church was extremely present in people's lives. Like my uncle was a parish priest, and so he was the chaplain of the brass band and of the women's guild and of every association in the village. And so he was the all-seeing eye of the church. And you see, everybody felt the church presence very closely. You know, every meeting of those associations started with a prayer. And only 20 years later, that whole institution was collapsing. I was part of that, you see. Mine was a very typical scenario. I'm the eldest son. And uh, so usually it was the eldest son who started, who, you know, 16 or so, announced to his parents, I'm not going to church anymore. And then the, the, the younger siblings started wondering, what, is there anything wrong with going to church? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they got interested and they also left. In many cases, the parents also left. And even, you see, among old people who still go to church for, like, social reasons... You know, you hear things like, oh my God, you see, what have they fooled us when we were kids? You know, they, they, they still go to church, but they don't really believe in Christianity anymore. So, an institution like that can collapse when people start to doubt. The main reason for doubt was not what some Christians say, oh, it was because people are becoming too prosperous. During the war, everybody is a believer in whichever religion he has. But you see now, after the war in Europe, there was a great rise in prosperity and a democratization of prosperity. So many more people, you know, were no longer afraid of the, you know, destiny. And so they started to look closely at the basic dogmas of Christianity. And these could not withstand scrutiny. Yet, you see, this, this movement towards modernity, towards doubt, towards rationalism, 
had existed already for 200 years. The church had weathered the storm quite well. Like in, in the 19th century, you know, the, the upcoming socialist movements started um, trade unions. Okay, the Christians also started trade unions with less of class struggle and so on, so to, to sort of keep the, the working class's uh, dissatisfaction under control. You know, this started, the socialists started uh, cooperative uh, associations, the Christians followed. Uh, the, the Boy Scout movement started. And so, you know, because people were moving to the cities, but they wanted their, their boys to, you know, have some experience of the forest and so on, just on Sunday afternoon. And the church was against this. Just like they were, for instance, against the rise of sports, the rise of football competition and so on. They thought this is unchristian, this is sort of pagan. This reminded them of, you know, the, the ancient Romans with their, you know, gladiators and so on. Um, so they tried to stop it, but they couldn't. It was too attractive to people. So they started an organization monitoring sports. Um, in my country, Sporta, which means uh, sports apostolate. Um, then um, they started their own Boy Scout movement, which did the same as the others, but they also went to church on Sunday. And so anyway, you know, they tried to keep everything under control. So they thought they had done that very well. In the 1950s, nothing, no problem. And then it's it collapsed. So I see this happening in Islam also. And so now the, the, the new wave, new step towards modernity is uh, the internet and everything that goes with it. So in the, in the loneliest harem in the desert of Saudi Arabia, you have computers. And so... <laughs> in the secrecy of their own room. <laughs> they can watch all these Islam-critical sites. That's not the first thing they're going to watch. But ultimately, they'll come to that. And so today, Islam may think that, you know, the Internet revolution has been controlled, you know, because they have their own websites. You know, if you have some problem, you know, what is the Islamic way to urinate? You know, that's an example from... Arun Shauri's book, Fatwas. So there, there are Islamic, you know, uh, there is Islamic advice about which is the Islamic way to urinate, you know. And any other question you can come up with, there is some Islamic authority that has spoken out on it. So there are websites with all this. So in a way you could think, oh yeah, you know, Islam is really, has really gone along with the internet revolution. But I don't think so. You see, I think the medium is the message. And so the, the accessibility of all possible information, that in itself is already un-Islamic. And then what do you do on the internet? You listen to music, for example. That is already un-Islamic. And so at some point it will get you to clash with orthodox authorities. 
And so I am fairly confident that the uh, certainly the hard parts of Islam are not going to live very much longer. Then there is also the experience that Islam is not a success formula. In the beginning, Islam was of course wildly successful. It uh, spread in no time. This is only uh, well a few years after the Prophet's death that they had conquered the whole Middle East, all of Iran, Egypt. So that was, a, that was very successful. And then after that, well, once in a while it was not so successful, but overall it was. And anyway, there was no alternative. Like, for instance, you have the Mongol co conquest of, the, of the, most of the Middle East. Um, so that was a, a pagan uh, culture. Though many Muslims, in fact, think that Genghis Khan was a Muslim because all the Pakistanis are also called Khan. Um, so he was, he was in fact the greatest possible scourge of the Muslim world. He's the man who killed the most Muslims. But then you see, they conquered Iran, they had this Ilkhan dynasty, and they became Muslim. And so then, you know, they were suddenly acceptable to the Muslim world. So, you see, there again, Islam had ultimately shown its superiority. And, and so the alternative that suddenly appeared on the horizon also disappeared very soon, became Islamized. But you see, in the modern age, you get something different. Although, 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 you might think that that, that, that progress uh, towards modernity has failed also. You see, in the colonial period, the West was very dominant. And so many people in the Muslim world saw it like that, you know, oh, we have to become more like the West. And so you do get these westernizing movements, very explicitly in Turkey with Ataturk. But also, for example, in Iran, the period of the constitution, which is the early 20th century, you know, culturally, Islam was looked upon as something backward, you know, something for your grandmother and, you know, we let it die on its own. Um, well, as we know now, you know, that, that didn't last. So you get a revival of Islam. And so you might think, oh, well, modernity is not going to conquer Islam. But again, I'm not so sure. You know, Islam was very successful again for a while, particularly because Allah had put all this oil in their, their soil. But that's not going to last very much longer. You know, now with all the attempts to find alternative sources of energy, the importance of oil is becoming less. And then you have all the other domains. You see that in technology, the Muslim world is not producing anything. You know, they can boast, okay, yeah, you know, with all our money, we can send our children to schools in Augsburg or Ivy League or so. 
and, and some of them become great successes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's not in the Muslim world. And so in an Islamic environment, they can't give their best, you know, they can't develop themselves. So that is going to really, inf or, or that is right now already influencing people. This notion of, oh my God, you know, we are a backwater, you know. And it is specifically Islam that is keeping them backwards. So, you know, I can't quantify this. I have no figures about this. But as I read Muslim sources or talk to Muslims, I find that that, that mentality, that change in mentality is really happening. So personally, I am, uh, well, I won't say optimistic, but I am not a doomsday uh, prophet. I don't think that Islam will become the majority in India or in Europe. And by the time of their demographic maximum percentage, already Islam will no longer be what it now is. You see, because again, you have... You have two tendencies. You have those who really leave Islam, but then you have the influence of that group within Islam. You have all those who still call themselves Muslim, but nevertheless, you know, don't want to practice all the uh, extreme policies that Muhammad advocated. There, of course, you have to be careful. Moderate Muslims <laughs> are of two kinds. You know, you have those who are really moderate, where their normal human feelings or their attraction by modernity really gets the upper hand over their Islamic beliefs. <coughs> but then you have those who very much are into Islamic beliefs, but they don't believe in extremism. Why? Well, you can achieve the goals of Islam without this romantic harking back to jihad and terrorism and so on. You see, the negative side of terrorism is that it wakes sleeping dogs. In Europe, nobody cared about Islam. And you see, then a few intellectuals started seeing, oh, there's something wrong. But again, the, the, the population as a whole did not care. But then you had these bomb attacks. You know, I mean, like... Uh, your sister was taking the plane to take a holiday in, in Portugal and suddenly she's dead because on the airport some terrorists had been active. And then it comes in the news and everybody makes statements about it and so on. And so now everybody is aware. And so today, I won't speak out on India, but I can tell you in Europe, the general population, you can't fool them anymore about Islam. You know, the, the news media are extremely mendacious, are always covering up Islam. You know, if they can, some Islamic crime is committed, they will not give the name of the perpetrator. Um, all that, you see, that doesn't help anymore. If, if the news says, you know, oh yeah, you know, so many people were killed by youngsters then everybody knows, yeah, yeah, they mean Muslims. So, you know, the general population is very skeptical uh, about Islam. And so, yeah, that is... I mean, here in India, for example, now the present agitation 
against the uh, Citizenship Act uh, again makes people aware of what they are up against. The enormous mobilization of the Muslim community, you know, even though not very violent and very professionally contained by India's security forces, nevertheless is a wake-up call for most non-Muslims. Right? So, on the one hand, you see, there is this increasing consciousness of the Islam problem. Um, and so, what is not yet there, this is, I mean, what I'm saying now is relatively new. Very few people say that. But so, at the same time, there is this counter-tendency, uh, namely that the Islamic world is weakening. That is very much there. And many people you see, don't have any global view about what is happening, but see it in their personal relations with Muslims. So yes, you have things like love, jihad and so on. At the same time, you also have the opposite tendency. Um, maybe in India it's not so much yet, because here the religions, not only Islam, are still very uh, compartmentalized are living relatively separate lives, even though they, they meet in schools and so on. But in Europe, you see, which is still a, a more secular society, Muslims who want to leave Islam, or who effectively want to leave Islam, all while keeping an Islamic face for their parents, um, can more easily blend in the non-Islamic society. And so you get plenty of, you know, mixed couples, uh, in many cases um, with the non-Islamic partner converting, which is also very much, very much supported by our politicians. But there are also many others, and they don't come in the news. Uh, but so I, I know quite a few. So again there, you know, you can see in day-to-day -day life that Islam is not the formidable enemy that many people think it is. So, personally, I am... Um, well, I mean, we'll see what happens, but I don't think it will be that bad. So, one part which you've not covered is um, what is a response that, say, the Hindu society, or in general, Especially, yeah, especially the Hindu society in India needs to give uh, to Islam a, a critical analysis, for example, of Islam. So when Shankarji called for this, he actually said that there, there's a systematic uh, approach that you may have on on criticizing Islam, so as so as to in the space of activism, for example, what can we do to hasten the speed of people leaving Islam, for example? Well, there's not much you can do. They have to do that themselves. What you certainly uh, should avoid is to support the, the orthodox, is to support the Islamic oppression of Muslims who are in doubt. Like the case I, I started with in France, where this girl is uh, scolding Islam and receives death threats and then is chided by French politicians, oh, you brought it on yourself. And who are even demanding that the police investigates whether she cannot be brought to trial 
for spreading hatred or something. Mm. Um, so that should certainly be avoided. Uh, but the, the most important thing you can do for now is to simply stop fooling yourself. You see, when I say that there is a problem with Islam, it is the Hindus, first of all, who will say, no, 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 no. What about the Prime Minister? You see, worldwide, the press denounces him as anti-Muslim and so on. Can anyone cite an anti-Muslim statement of his? I think it's also to do, you said one sentence, that uh, <clears throat> it's not as big a challenge, I think towards the end you said, it's not as big a challenge as we think it is, we yeah. believe it is. And I think as far as Hindus are concerned, you know, one thing that they miss out on, which the West or the Christianity mm -hmm. doesn't, is that they've forgotten to praise themselves. They no longer talk of all that's good in Hinduism, whether mm -hmm. it's religion, yeah. or the culture, or the history. Uh, <coughs> they don't talk about all of that. So yes. as if mm -hmm. we are willing to kind mm -hmm. of whitewash ourselves. Like mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same problem in Europe, though the history is very different. You see, Europe was very self-confident and had a very high opinion of itself until recently. Whereas the Hindus had been told already for centuries that they were, that they were lower class people, that they were backward, that they were barbaric and so on. And in their case, there is no reversal. On the contrary, there is a continuation of this old condemnation of Hinduism. And so it's about time to, uh, to change that. So as you said, you can't do much about what Muslims will do to come out. They have to do it themselves. But you can do something about how you think of yourself. Yes, of course, you see. They um, continue to think very highly of Islam. Also, because many non-Muslims treat them with reverence, treat Islam with reverence. Like uh, even people who are anti-Muslim are pro-Islamic. <clears throat> like Guru Golwalkar, the um, leader of the Indo-Nationalist movement, used to say, Uh, Muhammad was a great prophet. Islam is a great religion. But the Muslims are, the word he used was Padji, you know. The Muslims are scoundrels. And that's what you see very many intellectuals who ought to know better also say, you know, that uh, if there is, if at all they recognize any problem caused by Muslims, then they will say, yeah, they have misinterpreted their prophet. You know, the prophet, he knew it all, he had the right vision, but yeah, you know, the weakness of ordinary human beings who follow him, you know, they start doing all this mischief. What can I say? <clears throat> you see, it, it is enormous how people manage to fool themselves. You know, I just saw on social media some discussion about Jahangir, you know, who, who tortured a number of people, like Guru Arjan Dev, 
um, for religious reasons. And then, you know, some people replied, oh, but Jahangir was not religious. Come on. You see, the fact that he was a drunkard doesn't mean he didn't believe in Islam. I mean, <clears throat> like in Christianity, in Islam too, you have people who know the rules uh, and don't apply them. And so sometimes, in some stage in life, after some crisis, they get religion. And suddenly they become more serious about their religion, uh, which may be a bad thing. Like in Islam, you see this phenomenon very often with people who just live their lives and then suddenly they get religion and they start persecuting others. Okay, uh, But anyway, you see, getting religion in the sense of starting to take your values serious, hmm? that certainly happens. But so, uh, even when they don't live up to these religious values, they know what the religious values are they know they don't live up to them, but then they explain that to themselves. Yeah, but I'm an ordinary human being. I'm not a prophet. I can wear the beard of the prophet, but I am not a prophet. So yeah, okay, I'm not perfect. Okay, fine. And so to make up for that, whenever something happens that makes them want to make up for that, they will show teeth. They will start defending Islam militantly. In fact, it says... It's a, it's a thing you see among Muslim communities who need to prove their Muslimness. You see, in, in, in Hinduism, many groups try to move out, like the Ramakrishna mission, like the Virashaivas and so on. In Islam, you have the opposite. You have groups that are not recognized as Muslims by the orthodoxy and that try to prove that they really are Muslims. I think of the Ahmadiyyas. And so they're very fanatical. I mean, they're not recognized as Muslims, rather than doing the logical thing and say, oh, well, okay, then drop Islam. No, no, no. They try to prove that they're really Muslim by being extra fanatical. Uh, so, yeah, that is, that is there. Um, now, a good attitude uh, towards this, you can speak out on it, you know. I am not at all advocating any violence or so. That's not necessary. But you can be truthful. And first of all, you have to be truthful to yourself. You see, all these Hindus fooling themselves, it's unbelievable. But then again, I mean, I am not some Westerner who says, oh, these Hindus, they fool themselves. Because right now, the same thing is happening in Europe on a large scale. I mean... The, the more important you are, or the more visible you are, the more you come on TV, you know, the more uh, subservient to Islam you become. You know, I, I said, you see, many people cannot fool about Islam. Yeah, that's the ordinary people. But you see, people who are seen in public, they always hurry to be on the safe side of Islam. You have the same thing in India. <clears throat> so that's the very first thing you can do. And then you can speak the truth. Now about that, uh, many politicians will say, yeah, but I cannot afford that. You know, I don't want to be known as an Islamophobe and so on that will greatly hurt my career. Well, okay, fair enough. Personally, I don't think anything is gained by not speaking the truth. But all right. If, 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 I'm not going to tell them how they have to 
conduct their own profession if they say that this is what they need. Okay, fine. Okay, so you don't, you don't speak the truth about Islam. Well, what you can then do is avoid the subject. You know, not, not, not say anything about it. There are so many things you can say. Like, for example, I remember Rajiv Gandhi, he uh, visited Syria and he said that, uh, yeah, you know, Syria has a lot in common with India because long ago Mohammed bin Qasim brought to India the message of Islam. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, this is so silly. That was probably a speech written by Mani Shankar Ayer. Um, but, okay. So, what should he have done? You know, you can say, yeah, but diplomatically this was necessary to flatter the Syrians and so on. Well, I don't know. You know, look, look at history, you see, are there any other points in common? Like, for example, long ago, uh, a group of Indians speaking some kind of Sanskrit, you see, when the Saraswati dried up and there was a whole desiccation of this northwestern India, you had lots of emigration to the east, to Patna and so on. Uh, locally, you know, from the Saraswati, they went upland, whatever little rivers they were, and they founded new cities like Panipat, Sonipat, Indraprastha, and so on. <coughs> and then they also went west. And so, in two languages, the Kassite language and the Mitanni language, uh, you still find traces of Sanskrit. And the names also are Sanskrit names. Now, this, this Mitanni kingdom was in Syria. So, you know, if you're Ajit Gandhi, you go to Syria and you say, yeah, you know, we like Syria so much that our people went there, you know, 3,500 years ago. <laughs> and so, yeah, we have a common bond. I mean, you know, you know, <laughs> I mean, what are speechwriters for? You know, you invent something convenient. So there's absolutely no reason to tell lies about Islam. So that's that's my advice to these uh, to these politicians. Yes. Follow up question. So people leaving Islam, Muslims leaving Islam, yeah. and um, their fear of being persecuted or even killed. Yeah. And equally, Hindus, the Malay for example. Yeah. So there's so much gratuitous aggression from Islamic ecosystem mm -hmm. that is perhaps the reason Professor Kwebra tells that the people who come into the limelight shy away from criticizing Islam. Is this correct? Yeah, but um, it's not only in places where they really risk their lives. I mean, if in some insignificant backwater like my country, some politician would be critical of Islam, openly on TV, he would not risk his life really. It's unlikely that anyone would care to kill him. No, you see, they're, they're far more concerned with their reputation. If they start criticizing Islam, 
they do not only get criticized from the Islamic circles, they get criticized by the leftists, also by the Christians, by the remaining Christians. Within Christianity, you have this uh, interesting phenomenon that they support Islam because, as our own um, Archbishop has said, religion is becoming more relevant again thanks to Islam. Religion had been practically discarded, was no longer present in the public sphere. And thanks to Islam, it is again. Right? So, you see, in that circle too, you get uh, really nasty comments about any criticism of Islam. So it is more because they want to live up to those people's standards more than to Islam. But then I agree that in, in many cases, of course, physical fear of Islam is also there, and more so for Muslims than for non-Muslims. I mean, if I criticize Islam, that's not entirely without danger, but then for many Muslims that means, yeah, you know, a kafir is, is, is a kafir, you know, and he's defending, you know, his own uh, unbelief, you know, that's, that's not so new. Whereas if a Muslim apostatizes, that's uh, a critical. And we don't support each other. Hindus, one Hindu in... Uh, yeah, that Hindus don't support each other. Um, may be true, but I think many communities would say that. Um, there is plenty of enmity between Muslims, though indeed that enmity ceases the moment that they face any attack from outside. Then they, of course, stand together. That is indeed something that Hindus should learn a little bit. Um, <coughs> I um, want to reiterate my point that I am not at all advocating violence against Muslims. Why? <coughs> well, first of all, I am not in favor of violence. I think it should only be used as a last resort. Um, and I feel for my fellow human beings who suffer, even if they're Muslims. You know, that's n no problem. Therefore, I have always been very critical of these Western military interventions in the Middle East. You know, they're very counterproductive. Um, they generate greater hatred of the West and of the world of unbelievers among Muslims. So, what the Muslim world needs is a thaw. It needs to relax. Right now they're all mobilized against the external enemies. And so, you know, they need not be. And, um, you see, in Europe, it was in a long period of peace that Christianity collapsed. And so, <laughs> for that reason, too, I'm for peace in the Muslim world. You know, that, that, that allows people to mentally develop themselves, to evolve. <coughs> Some people say, oh, yeah, you know, there's plenty of Islamophobia. It's a major problem. Look at those military interventions. <coughs> but these two phenomena have nothing to do with each other. Sitaram Goel was a great critic of Islam. 
he has never hurt a hair on the head of one Muslim. He was very friendly with Muslims. So, um, by contrast, look at the record of a number of Islamophiles, of Islam defenders. Each of the Western politicians who has announced and was ordered military attacks on the Muslim world has been a very outspoken defender of Islam. Even George Bush, with his Iraq invasion, uh, Barack Obama and, and uh, his two ministers of foreign affairs, uh, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, were all very explicitly against the criticism of Islam and spoke out in favor of this great religion of Islam. In fact, John Kerry, when he was ordering the bombing of the caliphate of ISIS, said explicitly, we're doing this because we want to defend and restore the real Islam. So in, in his fantasy world, ISIS did not represent the real Islam, whereas, of course, it was founded by a doctor of Islamic studies um, who knew perfectly well that everything he did could easily stand up in an Islamic court because it was covered by the president of the prophet. But so John Kerry, who doesn't know anything <coughs> about Islam, nevertheless told everyone, yeah, you know, this is not the real Islam, and we're going to teach them. We're going to bomb them. So what he was saying is, in order to uphold the real Islam, we are going to bomb thousands of Muslims to death. Uh, John Cameron, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, likewise um, said about ISIS, they are not Muslims, but monsters. Meaning that, you see, he was sending his troops to Iraq in order to kill people who happen to be Muslims. But, you see, we, we now declare them monsters, and so then it's okay. Right? We don't want to kill Muslims, we want to kill monsters. Well, so I am not in favor of that. You see, I think all this bombing was absolutely counterproductive. It was b bad for the Western countries themselves. It was bad for the people in Syria, Iraq, Libya. Um, and so it was very bad for the consciousness concerning Islam. So that is certainly not the thing to do. And I mean, I wonder, you know, what happened to the people who advocated these invasions at the time. Like the invasion in Libya was ultimately started by the French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, under the influence of a French philosopher, Bernard-Henri Lévy, who was all about human rights and so on, and Gaddafi is a dictator. Well, yes, Gaddafi is a dictator. You see, in that part of the world, it's hard to survive if you're not a dictator. And moreover, he had softened quite a bit. You see, in the, in the 80s or so, he was supporting terrorism, you know, hijackings of airplanes. And um, 
and very outspoken. You know, if you, if you just saw his interviews, you know, I, I could understand that America would treat him as an enemy. Like, uh, you know, he was asked at some point if these Spanish cities in North Africa, there are a few cities belonging to Spain, but they are like all North African soil in Morocco. <clears throat> so um, he was asked, don't you think that this is a problem? Um, and he said, no, this is not a problem. Those cities are, uh, are Arab cities, you know, meaning we claim them. So why should the Spanish worry about that? <laughs> I mean, he was fun, you know. <laughs> like, for instance, the way he changed the flag. You know, the flag was originally some color pattern, and so he dropped that. The flag is green, you know, just like the Hindu flag is orange. <laughs> so, I mean, he was interesting, and um, he was not too oppressive, I mean, compared to other Middle Eastern dictators, okay, he was just one of them. Um, but what is special about him is that he really cared for the prosperity of his people. So he had all, all his oil wealth, and he used it to improve the life of his people. So, you see, then to fuss about human rights, look what human rights they have now. Look at Libya today. So, um, I think that those people who wanted those interventions should really be ashamed of themselves. I wonder if they are. I think that I would say the same thing about Saddam Hussein. Uh, he was running a fairly uh, progressive society. Yes. Although all the people <coughs> oppressing the Kurds and all that. And um, he was a dictator, no doubt. Mm-hmm. He was not spreading elsewhere. Of course, he had a war with Iran that was long back. Yes, but then, you see, of course, he was a dictator, true. But, you see, for the minorities in Iraq, he was the best they could hope for. And so, for uh, a power that is very much a Christian power, the United States, it is uh, bizarre that that they had a policy about Iraq that was so detrimental to the Christian presence there. I mean, what they had in, 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 in the place of this socialist dictator was, you see, these ayatollahs who came to power and, and then all kinds of local militias that were not under state control but that at any rate chased the Christians away. So, and then, you know, other things that follow, like they made room for the caliphate. You know, under, under Saddam Hussein, there would have been no ISIS. So, no, it was a big mistake. I mean, I thought for principled reasons since the beginning that it was a mistake, but I didn't know what was coming. But when you now see the results, you know, how could you possibly defend that? I had a hypothetical question to both of you. Okay, okay, okay. Last question. Yeah, just a quick hypothetical question. Yeah. The CAA, the Announcement of the CA of the government, and I, and this just come to me in retrospect. 
Do you think it would have been a good idea for the government to include the Balochis of Pakistan as persecuted minorities? Because there's a freedom movement going on there. Yeah, true, but you see the Balochis are not a religious group. Then you would have to extend the dominion of the law even farther. You know, then you get a, a lot more ethnic groups like the Hazaras in Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, it, it was a difficult thing to decide and to, to define the borders. Like I said, you see, Malaysia could have been included. It wasn't. So that was a bit of a difficult thing. I think that the government should have studied the question more and, and fine-tuned the, the text of their law. But I can't say that I really know how it should be done. You know, like the situation in Assam is very different from that in West Bengal, for example. Uh, you know, to arrange all that. I'm not sure that that law was really necessary. Because to a large extent, it is part of the discretionary powers of a government whom they allow in, whom they give citizenship to. And so here they really drew attention to a kind of discrimination, admittedly not discrimination among Indian citizens, but still it looked bad. And so what is really necessary in India is, on the contrary, equality between the religions, namely an abolition of the discriminations against Hinduism. Now here many foreign foreign viewers will not understand what I'm talking about. But <laughs> there are very serious constitutional discriminations against the majority community. So if you want to do something about that, you promote the idea of equality. And that you don't do by passing a law that speaks about inequality, namely between the Muslim oppressors in the neighboring countries versus the non-Muslim oppressed. Not that that doesn't describe a reality very much, but to cast that into law and to have your own signature under it, that was not wise. You see, it was not needed. You could anyway have the discretion. Yeah, exactly. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you.